Section 5 of the Democracy of the Constitution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. The Democracy of the Constitution and Other Addresses and Essays by Henry Cabot Lodge. The Constitution and Its Makers, Part 3. The framers of our government separated the executive from the legislative branch. They deemed both essential to freedom. The Constitution of my state of Massachusetts declares that the government it establishes is to be a government of laws and not of men, a noble principle and one worthy of fresh remembrance. With such a history, and typifying as it does the great doctrines which were embodied in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and the institutions of England, it may fairly be asked that if the representative principle must be criticized, as it should be, with severity when it errs, it should also be treated with that absolute justice which is not only right in the abstract, but which is essential to the maintenance of law, order, and free government, to human progress, and to the protection of the weak, even as the fathers designed that it should be. When we blame its failures, let us not forget its services. They have broadened freedom down from precedent to precedent. They shine across those pages of history which tell the great story of the advance of liberty, and of the ever-widening humanity, which seeks to make the world better and happier for those who most need happiness and well-being. In beneficent results for the people at large, no other form of government ever attempted can compare with it for a moment. The worst feature of the compulsory initiative and referendum lies therefore in the destruction of the principle of representation. Power without responsibility is a menace to freedom and good government. Responsibility without power is inconceivable, for no man in his senses would bear such a burden. But when responsibility and power are both taken away, whether from the executive or the representatives, the result is simple in a nation. No man fit by ability and character to be a representative would accept the office under such humiliating conditions. Those who accepted it would do so for the pecuniary reward which the office carried, and would sink rapidly into mere machines of record, neither knowing nor caring what they did. With a representative body thus reduced to nothingness, we are left with a people, armed only with their votes, and with an executive who has necessarily absorbed all the real powers of the state. This situation is an old story, and has always ended in the same way. It presents one of those rare cases in which the teaching of history is uniform. When the representative principle has departed, and only its ghost remains to haunt the capital, liberty has not lingered long beside its grave. The rise of the representative principle and its spread to new lands today marks the rise of popular government everywhere. Wherever it has been betrayed or cast down, the government has reverted to despotism. When representative government has perished, freedom has not long survived. Most serious most fatal indeed are the dangers threatened by the insidious and revolutionary changes which it is proposed to make in our representative system, upon which the makers of the Constitution relied as one of the great buttresses of the political fabric, which was to ensure to popular government success and stability. Yet even these changes are less ruinous to the body politic, to liberty and order, than that which proposes to subject judges to the recall. No graver question than this has ever confronted the American people. The men who framed the Constitution were much nearer to the time when there was no such thing as an independent judiciary than we are now. 
The bad old days, when judges did the bidding of the king, were much more vivid to them than to us. What is a commonplace to us was to them a comparatively recent and a hardly won triumph. The fathers of some of those men, the grandfathers of all, could recall Jeffreys and the bloody assize. They knew well that there could be no real freedom, no security for personal liberty, no justice, without independent judges. It was for this reason that they established the judiciary of the United States with the tenure, which was to last during good behavior, and made them irremovable except by impeachment. The Supreme Court then created, and the judiciary which followed, have, as I have already said, excited the admiration of the civilized world. The makers of the Constitution believed that there should be no power capable of deflecting a judge from the declaration of his honest belief, no threat of personal loss, no promise of future emolument, which could be held over him in order to sway his opinion. This conviction was ingrained and born with them, as natural to them as the air they breathed, as vital as their personal honor. How could it have been otherwise? The independence of the judiciary is one of the great landmarks in the long struggle which resulted in the political and personal freedom of the English-speaking people. The battle was fought out on English soil. If you will turn to the closing scenes of Henry IV, you will find there one of the noblest conceptions of the judicial office in the olden time ever expressed in literature. It was written in the days of the last Tudor, or of the first Stuart, in the time of the Star Chamber, of judges who decided at the pleasure of the king, and when Francis Bacon, the Lord Chancellor of England, took bribes or gifts. Yet, lofty as is the conception, you will see that Shakespeare regarded the judges as embodying the person, the will, and the authority of the king. We all know how the first two Stuarts used the courts to punish their enemies, and to prevent the assertion of political rights, which are now such commonplaces that the fact that they were ever questioned is forgotten. The tyranny of the courts was one of the chief causes which led to the Great Rebellion, and out of that Great Rebellion, when the third Stuart had been restored, came the Habeas Corpus Act, which has done more to protect personal liberty than any act ever passed. But the second Charles and the second James had learned nothing as to the judges. They expected them to do their bidding when the king had any interest at stake, and under the last Stuart, the courts reached a very low point, and the legal history of the time is characterized by the evil name of Jeffreys. When the lawyers went to pay their homage to William of Orange, they were headed by Sergeant Maynard, then ninety years of age. Mr. Sergeant, said the prince, you must have survived all the lawyers of your standing. Yes, sir, said the old man, and but for your highness I should have survived the laws, too. The condition of the courts was indeed one of the strongest of the many bitter grievances which wrought the revolution that placed William of Orange on the English throne. In the famous Bill of Rights there is no provision in regard to the courts, and it is not quite clear why it was admitted, although apparently it was due to an oversight. In any event, it was not forgotten. It was brought forward more than once in Parliament, but William announced that he would not assent to any act making the judges independent of the crown. As his reign drew towards its close, however, 
He signified that although he would veto a separate act, he would accept the independence of the judiciary if provided for in the act of settlement, which was to determine the succession to the throne of England. Therefore, we find in the act of settlement the clause which declares that the judges shall hold office during good behavior, quam diu se bene gesserint, and shall be removed only on the request of both houses of Parliament. It is necessary to pause a moment here, and consider briefly the provision of the Act of Settlement for the removal of judges on an address by the Houses, because it has been most incorrectly used by persons ignorant probably of its history as a precedent justifying the recall. The clause was inserted not for the purpose of controlling the judges, but to protect them still further against the power of the crown by which they had hitherto been dominated. The history of the clause, since its enactment, demonstrates what its purpose was as well as the fulfillment of that purpose in practice. During the two centuries which have elapsed since William III gave his assent to the Act, there has been, as far as I can learn, only one removal on address, that of Sir Jonah Barrington, an Irish judge, in 1806, more than a hundred years ago. There have been several cases where removal was petitioned for, but Barrington's was, I think, the only one in which the demand was successful. The procedure employed shows that there is no resemblance whatever between the removal of a judge upon the address of the lawmaking body and the popular recall. They are utterly different, are instituted for different purposes, and the former furnishes in reality a strong argument against the latter. In all the cases of removal or attempted removal by address of Parliament, the accused judge was carefully tried before a special committee of each house. He could be heard at the bar of either house. He could, and did employ counsel, and could summon and cross-examine witnesses. This process is as far removed from the recall as the zenith from the nadir. For under the recall by the voters, the accused judge has no opportunity to summon or cross-examine witnesses, to appear by counsel, or to be properly heard and tried. He is obliged under the system of the popular recall to make an appeal by the usual political methods, and at the same time to withstand another candidate, while he is forced to seek a hearing from audiences ignorant of the law, and inflamed perhaps against him by passion and prejudice. He has no chance, whatever, of a fair trial. Some of our states borrowed this provision of the Act of Settlement when they formed their constitutions. My own state of Massachusetts was one of them. The power has been but rarely exercised by the legislature in the hundred and thirty years which have passed since our Constitution was adopted. But it so happened that when I was in the legislature, a case occurred and I was a member of the Committee on the Judiciary to whom the petitions were referred. The accused judge was tried as elaborately and fairly as he could have been by any court or by the Senate if he had been impeached. He had counsel, he summoned and cross-examined witnesses, and the trial, for it was nothing less, occupied weeks. The House adopted the address, but it was defeated in the Senate. A year later, After a similar trial, the address passed both houses, and the judge was removed by the governor for misdemeanors and malfeasance in office. A mere statement of the procedure shows, at once, that the removal by address is simply a summary form of impeachment, with no relation or likeness to the recall. Removal by address is no more like the recall than impeachment is. 
If successful, they all result in the retirement of the judge accused, but there the resemblance ends. The makers of the Constitution did not follow the act of settlement and adopt the removal on address. They no doubt perceived its advantages, because it made possible the removal of a judge incapacitated by insanity or age, or disease, without inflicting upon him the stigma of an impeachment. But they also saw that the removal by address might be used for political and personal reasons, of which one instance occurred in my own state, and they probably determined that the risk of its abuse outweighed any possible benefit which might flow from its judicious exercise. They placed their courts as far as they could on the greatest heights of justice, above the gusts of popular passion. They guarded them in every possible way. They knew that judges were human, and therefore fallible. They knew that the courts would move more slowly than popular opinion or than Congress, but they felt equally sure that they would in the end follow that public opinion which was at once settled and well considered. All this they did because all history, and especially the history and tradition of their own race, taught them that the strongest bulwark of individual freedom and of human rights was to be found ultimately in an independent court, the cornerstone of all liberty. Their ancestors had saved the judges from the crown. They would not retrace their steps and make them subject to the anger or the whim of anyone else. They wished men to be free, as much from mobs as kings, from you as me. The problem which they then solved has in no wise changed. The independence of the judiciary is as vital to free institutions now as then. The system which our forefathers adopted has worked admirably, and has commanded the applause of their children and of foreign nations, who Bacon tells us are a present posterity. Now it is proposed to tear this all down, and to replace the decisions of the court with the judgment of the marketplace. If I may borrow a phrase from the brilliant speech made recently by Mr. Littleton in the House, it is intended to substitute, quote, government by tumult for government by law, unquote. Those who advocate this revolution in our system of government seem to think that a judge should be made responsible to the popular will, to the fleeting majority of one day, which may be a minority the next. They would make their judges servile, and servile judges are a menace to freedom, no matter to whom their servitude is due. They talk of a judge's duty to his constituents. A judge on the bench has no constituents, and represents no one. He is there to administer justice. He is there not to make laws, but to decide what the law is. He must know neither friend nor foe. He is there to declare the law, and to do justice between man and man. The advocates of the recall seem to believe that with subservient judges glancing timidly to right and left to learn what voters think, instead of looking steadfastly at the tables of the law, the poor will profit and the rich will suffer, that the individual will win and the corporation lose, that the powerful will be crushed and the weak will triumph, while the sword of the recall hangs over the head of the judicial Damocles. If even this were true, nothing could be more fatal. A judge must know neither rich nor poor, neither strong nor weak. He must know only law and justice. He must never listen to Bassanio's appeal, quote, to do a great right, do a little wrong, unquote. But the theory is, in reality, most lamentably false. 
no man fit to be a judge would, with few exceptions, take office under the recall. In the end, the bench would be filled by the weak and the unscrupulous. The weak would make decisions to curry favor and hold votes. The unscrupulous would use their brief opportunity to assure their own fortunes, and that assurance could come only from the rich and powerful, who would thus control the decisions. For the American court, we should substitute the Oriental Kadai, with the bribe-giver whispering in his ear. If a criminal happened to belong to some large and powerful organization in which interest the crime was committed, he would have little to fear from a court where a judge subject to the recall presided. We should have courts like those ruled by the Camorra in the days of the Neapolitan Bourbons, except that the subservience of the judge would be ensured by fear of the recall, instead of by dread of assassination. The result would be the same, and certain criminals would become a privileged class and commit their crimes with impunity. In one of the noblest passages of his letter to the sheriffs of Bristol, Edmund Burke says, The poorest being that crawls on earth contending to save itself from injustice and oppression is an object respectable in the eyes of God and man. Without the independent judge, those words could never have been written. For before the independent judge alone could the poorest hope to contend against injustice. Judges, of course, are human, and therefore error. I know well that there have been one or two great cases where the decision of the highest court traveling beyond its province has been reversed and swept away by the overwhelming force of public opinion and the irresistible current of events. I know only too well that we suffer from the abuse of technicalities, from delays which are often a denial of justice, and that the methods of our criminal law are in many states a disgrace to civilization. But all these delays and abuses and miscarriages of justice are within the reach of Congress and legislatures, and these evils can be remedied by statute whenever public opinion demands a reform. Their continued existence is our own fault. Yet when all is said, the errors of the highest courts are few, and the abuses and shortcomings to which I have referred can be cured by our own action. In the great mass of business, in the hundreds of trials which go on day by day and year by year, justice is done and the rights of all protected. We may declare with truth that in the courts, as we have known them, the poor, the weak, the helpless have found protection and sometimes their only defense. A mob might thunder at the gates, money might exert its utmost power, but there in the courtroom the judge could see only the law and justice. The safeguard of the rights and liberties of minorities and individuals, of the weak, and above all, of the unpopular, as a rule, has been found only in the court. And now it is proposed to undo all this, and to make the judges immediately dependent on the will of those upon whom they must pass judgment. If the framers of the Constitution were alive today, they would not find a single new condition to affect their faith in an independent judiciary. They would decide now, as they decided then. Are we ready to reverse their judgment and open the door to the flood of evils which will rush into the state as they always have rushed in when, in times past, the courts were controlled by an outside power? The destruction of an independent judiciary carries with it everything else, but it only illustrates sharply the general theory pursued by the makers of the Constitution. They established a democracy and they believed that a democracy would be successful, 
but they also believed that it could succeed solely through forms and methods which would not make it impossible for the people to carry on their own government. For this reason it was that they provided against hasty action, guarded against passion and excitement, gave ample room for the cooler second thought, and arranged that the popular will should be expressed through representative and deliberative assemblies, and the laws administered and interpreted through independent courts. Those who would destroy their work talk continually about trusting the people and obeying the people's will, but this is not what they seek. The statement, as they make it, is utterly misleading. That for which they really strive is to make the courts and the Congress suddenly and rapidly responsive to the will of a majority of the voters. It matters not that it may be a narrow, an ephemeral, or a fluctuating majority. To that temporary majority, which the next year may be changed to a minority, the Congress and the courts must at once respond. Legislation of the most radical, the most revolutionary character may thus be forced upon the country, not only without popular assent, but against the will of the great mass of the people. The framers of the Constitution made it in the name and for the benefit of the people of the United States, for the entire people, not for any fraction or class of the people. They did not make the Constitution for the voters of the United States. They recognized that the popular will could only be expressed by those who voted, and that the expression of the majority must in the end be final. But they restrained and made deliberate the action of the voters by the limitations placed upon the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches, so that the rights of all the people might be guarded and protected against ill-considered action on the part of those who vote. Those who now seek to alter the fundamental principles of the Constitution start with a confusion of terms and a false proposition. They talk glibly of the people, but they mean the voters, and the voters are not the people, but a small portion of the people, not more than a fifth or a sixth part, who are endowed by law with the power to express what is to be regarded as the popular will. The legal voters are the representatives and trustees of all the inhabitants of the country, of all those under twenty-one to whom the future belongs, of nearly all the women, of all resident aliens, and of all persons not qualified to vote. They are the instrument, the only practicable instrument, for reaching an expression of the popular will, but they are not the people as a whole, for whom and for whose protection the Constitution was made. It was for the protection of the people that the makers of the Constitution made provisions to assure deliberate movement and to prevent hasty, passionate, or ill-considered action. The purpose of those who would destroy the present Constitution is to remove these safeguards and for the people of the Constitution substitute, without check, hindrance, or delay, the will of the voters of the moment. They are blind to the awful peril of turning human nature loose to riot among first principles. But they do not stop even there. Under the system they propose, a small minority of the voters, who are themselves a minority of the people, are to have unlimited power to compel the passage of laws. A small minority will be able, and, as the experience of the voluntary referendum shows, will in almost every instance contrive to place laws upon the statute book, which the mass of the people really do not desire. A small minority can force the recall of a judge and drive him from the bench. The new system places the actual power in the hands of minorities, generally small, always interested and determined.
Instead of government by the people and for the people, we shall have government by factions, with all the turbulence, disorder, and uncertainty that the rule of factions ever implies. Such a system is a travesty of popular government and the antipodes of true democracy. Under the same conditions of human nature, with no element of decision lacking then that we have now, the framers of the Constitution established the system under which we have flourished and rejected that which it is now proposed to set up, and which all experience has shown to be a failure. Their system embodied in the Constitution has proved its efficacy. It has worked well, and it has been an extraordinary success. The other, burdened with the failures of centuries, has always trodden the same path, which revolves in the well-worn vicious circle from democracy to anarchy, from anarchy to despotism, and then by slow and painful steps back to the high levels of an intelligent freedom and an ordered liberty. Our ancestors sought to make it as impossible as human ingenuity could devise to drag democracy down by the pretense of giving it a larger scope. We are asked to retrace our steps, adopt what they rejected, take up that which has failed, cast down that which has triumphed, and for government by the people substitute the rule of factions led by the eternal and unwearied champions who in the name of the people seek the promotion which they lack. Such are the questions which confront us today, amazing in their existence under a constitution with such a history as ours. The evils which it is sought to remedy are all, so far as they actually exist, curable by law. No doubt evils exist. No doubt advance, reform, progress, improvements are always needed as conditions change, but they can all be attained by law. There is no need to destroy the Constitution, to wreck the fundamental principles of democracy and of the Bill of Rights embodied in the First Ten Amendments in order to attain an amelioration of conditions and to a wider and more beneficent social state when statutes can affect all and more than is demanded. It is not necessary to scuttle a noble ship in order to rid her of rats. It is not imperative to burn the strong, well-timbered house which has sheltered successive generations because there is a leak in the roof. It is only a madman who would hurl down in blackened ruin a noble palace the work and care of centuries, because a stain easily erased may now and then be detected upon the shining whiteness of its marble walls. All these questions, all these reforms and revolutions so gloriously portrayed to us, it cannot be said too often, are very old. Their weakness is not that they are new, but that they are time-worn and outworn. The voices which are now crying so shrilly that we must destroy our constitution and abandon all our principles of government have been heard, quote, in ancient days by emperor and clown, unquote. They are as old as human discontent and human impatience, and are as ancient as the flattery which has followed sovereign authority from the days of the pharaohs to our own. There is a familiar story, which we all heard as children, of the courtiers of Newt, king of England, a mighty warrior and a wise man, not destitute evidently of humor. These courtiers told the king that the tide would not dare to come in against his command and wet his feet. So he bade them place his chair near the edge of the sea, and the main came silent, flooding in about him, and you all remember the lesson which the king read to his flatterers. 
Many kings have come and gone since then, and those who still remain now for the most part walk in fetters. But the courtier is eternal and unchanged. He fawned on Pharaoh and Caesar, and from their day to our own has always been the worst enemy of those he flattered. He and his fellows contended bitterly in France for the privilege of holding the king's shirt, and when the storm broke, which they had done so much to conjure up, with few exceptions they turned like cravens and fled. New courtiers took the vacant places. They called themselves friends of the people, but their character was unaltered. They flattered the mob of the Paris streets, shrieking in the galleries of the convention, with a baseness and a falsehood surpassing even those of their predecessors who had cringed around the throne. Where there is a sovereign, there will be courtiers, and too often the sovereign has listened to the courtiers and turned his back on the loyal friends, who are ready to die for him, but would not lie to him. Too often has the sovereign forgotten that, in the words of one of the most penetrating and most brilliant of modern English essayists, quote, a gloomy truth is a better companion through life than a cheerful falsehood, unquote. Across the centuries come those dangerous and insidious voices, and they sound as loudly now, and are as false now as ever. They are always at hand to tell the sovereign that at his feet the tide will cease to ebb and flow, that the laws of nature and economic laws alike will at his bidding turn gently and do his will. And the tides move in, and the waves rise, and the sovereign who has listened to the false and selfish voters is submerged in the waste of waters, while the courtiers have rushed back to safety, and from the heights above are already shouting, The king is dead! Long live the king! I have a deep reverence for the great men who fought the revolution and made the constitution, but I repeat that I as little think that all wisdom died with them as I do that all wisdom was born yesterday. When they dealt with elemental questions and fundamental principles, the same yesterday, today, and forever in human history, I follow them because they have proved their wisdom by their success. I am not ready to say with dawn, quote, we are scarce our father's shadow cast at noon. Unquote. But I am more than ready. I profoundly believe that we should cherish in our heart of hearts the noble and familiar words of the wise son of Surach. Quote, Let us now praise famous men and our fathers that begat us. The Lord hath wrought great glory by them through his great power from the beginning. Leaders of the people, by their counsels and by their knowledge of learning, meet for the people, wise and eloquent in their instruction. All these were honored in their generations, and were the glory of their times. There be of them that have left a name behind them, that their praises might be reported. And some there be, which have no memorial, who are perished as though they had never been, and are become as though they had never been born, and their children after them. But these were merciful men, whose righteousness hath not been forgotten. With their seed shall continually remain a good inheritance, and their children are within the covenant. Their seed standeth fast, and their children for their sakes. Their seed shall remain forever, and their glory shall not be blotted out. Their bodies are buried in peace but their name liveth forevermore. The people will tell of their wisdom, and the congregation will show forth their praise. 
End of section 5